The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message by Beth Coppage. What a blessing to see everyone here this morning and what a joy to be back. Um, it's, I'm so excited about what God's going to teach us out of the book of Jeremiah. I'd like us, before we begin next week with Jeremiah 1, I, we wanted you to be able to have time to get in the Word for yourself personally this week, to be able to have God speak to your heart so you would be prepared next week when we come together with the very first chapter of Jeremiah. But I felt that it might please Jesus if today we put our hearts together and thought of what it means to be a Titus woman, especially, and what is the nature of our Bible study that we actually call ourselves the Titus Women's Bible Study. And to do this today, I'd like to have you look, not in Jeremiah 1, but if you turn to Luke 14. And then your, the small group hostess at your table will give out to you each. There's a little handout at the t beginning of your table. If everyone could have that in the next few minutes, we're going to look at that. And then that could go in the beginning part of your notebook when you get, get your notebook. We're going to read Luke 14 and begin with verse 15. Now one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things. He said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they were all with one accord began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I brought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you, please have me excused. And the second one said, I brought a fine yoke, five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you, please have me excused. Still another said, I've married a wife and I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, or earnestly invite them to come in, is what the Greek says, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those who are invited shall taste my supper. And a great multitude went with Jesus, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, in his very own life, he cannot be my disciple. When whoever does not bear his cross and cannot come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation, he is not able to finish, and all who see begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who come against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. 
So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for land nor fit for the dunghill, but to be thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, what is Jesus saying right here in this passage? One thing he is saying that he is inviting us to a banquet feast, and he wants us all to come. The conditions of the banquet feast are not that we are literally to hate everyone in our life that we love and he's given to us, but that he is asking us to come into his presence so that what Mary said is we love him hook, line, and sinker. We love Jesus Christ first and foremost. We love him more than anyone or anything else. So today, and that we're to weigh the cost and we're seeing if our love relationship with Jesus Christ is intact and truly we do love him first or if we become like salt that's lost its flavor. And what do you do with unsalty salt? It is absolutely worthless. So this morning, we would like to invite you on a love adventure with Jesus Christ. But I'd like to pray first. Jesus, we would like to invite your presence to come. Would you like to come right now, Jesus? Because whenever you show up, Jesus, everything's different. And there's so much more joy and happiness. There's peace. There's wholeness. There's the sweetness of your presence. There's the liquid love that comes from God himself. So Jesus, would you go heart to heart? Would you go life to life? Would you meet every single one of us where we are this morning? And Father, just as you met the men on the Emmaus Road, would you draw near to us and would you open up the scripture that, Father, we may see you, we might know you, and we might comprehend the sweetness of who you are and enter into a love adventure with thyself. Now, Father, would you take the words of my mouth the meditations of my heart, and let them be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I remember one time uh, that my mother-in-law, my precious little Georgia mother-in-law, has enriched my life in many ways. But one of the ways she enriched it as a young mother was she introduced me to the Uncle Wiggly books by, by I think, a man named Leon Garris. And they're about a rabbit gentleman who goes on, on adventures. His name is Uncle Wiggly. And he takes care of orphan animal children in the forest. And he has a, a little lady who's Nurse Jane Fuzzy Wuzzy, and she helps him care for these children. And all this, these stories are adventures that Uncle Wiggly goes on. And if Uncle Wiggly gets hungry, he has a very special car, and the car has a turnip steering wheel. So he just nibbles away at his steering wheel if he gets caught somewhere and he doesn't have enough food. Now, my children liked the stories, but I love Uncle Wiggly's stories. And so down through the years, since they've been little, every time we'd go to Wendy's or Walmart or we'd go to Atlanta for vacation or whatever, I would say, oh, 
we're going on an Uncle Wiggly adventure, and you never know where you'll end up if you're going on an Uncle Wiggly adventure. We did this as, as recently as two weeks ago when Susanna turned 19. I said, Susanna, I said, we'll pick you up at 3 in the afternoon, and I said, be ready, we're going on an Uncle Wiggly birthday adventure. And she goes, Mom. <laughs> she had a hard time explaining it to her boyfriend about her mother and Uncle Wiggly adventures. But today, I want to share with you even something more wonderful than a whimsical adventure of Uncle Wiggly. I want to share with you the sweetest love adventure. It is the eternal God calling you and calling me into a love adventure of full surrender so that we begin to know Jesus Christ personally, intimately. So we begin to know not just about him, but we know who he is. And he begins to transform and indwell our lives so we no longer live alone. And we begin to know the sweet enoughness of God himself. Now, the reason that we meet together week after week is because God has got something special for every single woman here. One of the biggest lies down through the history of the world is that I really don't count. I'm just one woman. I'm one ordinary woman. I've got this kind of stuff in my background. I've got this kind of baggage. I really couldn't be very useful. It doesn't really matter the choices I make. There really isn't much future for me. And do you know what? That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. If you and I read in Holy Scripture, do you know what it says? My two favorite verses, where it says, two of my favorite verses, Jeremiah 5.1, run up and down through the streets of Wilmore, Kentucky, through the streets of Lexington, Kentucky, or Nicholasville, Kentucky. See if you can find one woman who does, seeks truth, and does what's right, and I can forgive the city. There's incredible power in one woman who gets rightly related with Jesus Christ and begins to work and live in the purposes of God to transform whole families, whole communities, whole churches, whole people groups. And God is looking for you and I today to get plugged into who he is and then get plugged into what he has called us to be. And every single thing that he has made, put into you, he has made for a purpose. And the only way we will ever find out who we really are and the purposes for which he's really made us is if we fall in love with Jesus Christ and we utterly surrender to the sweetness of his will and to the sweetness of his person. And first of all, I would like to say, I think God would like to stir our hearts stir our hearts. The woman that God can use is a woman that seeks him first so that there comes into our, uh, our lives a time when we know Jesus Christ not just as Savior, but we move into the dimension where God draws us into a love relationship with himself of full surrender so that we say, Jesus, yes, I want to know you not just as Savior, but I want to give you all of me for all of you. And that we begin to let God transform our hearts so we seek God first. So we put God's, God's will ahead of our own. And then we begin to let God stir our hearts so that out of our lives we give ourselves to love and good works to the things that God has called us to do, not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of the deep call of God. Remember a few years ago, and last year we read them, and some of us that read the Helen Rosevere books, remember when Helen Ro Rosevere, the doctor to Africa from Great Britain, 
went back to Congo after rebellion in Congo in the uh, late 60s. She went back and everything had been destroyed. And so they were putting together the mission hospital that was to care for the people. And they were starting again the mission college for training um, African doctors and nurses. So they had worked very hard to get it all ready and they, had, they were asking for accreditation by the Congolese government. They heard, they had sent away to Kinshasa, which is like 450 miles away, to get paint, special paint to paint the medical college. <laughs> That'd be like sending to Atlanta. I mean, that's how valuable this paint was. They had asked for 12 big drums of paint. Five had been stolen, so they just had seven left. So th they got the paint, and then she met together with her painters to get that all ready because the accrediting association had called and said they were coming in one week's time. So they didn't have a lot of time. The paint had arrived, but there was not very much of it. They had the whole campus to do. So she said to some of her medical students, she said, is there a painter? Anybody here know how to paint? And two real ambitious young men said, I'm a great painter, I paint. She says, oh good, so she started them out painting. So they, she said she gave them the precious paint. She said, go to the classrooms, begin in the classrooms, begin to paint them. So she, in the middle of the morning, she got a funny feeling in the pit of her tummy. You know how you and I do as women? Something's not quite right with the paint crew. So she left everything to begin to go look for her painters. So she went in the first classroom and she looked around and nothing had been painted. It was all just like it had been. So then she went to the next classroom and it was the same condition. And she could begin to hear some singing in the next room and down the hall. But she looked and everything was the same as it had been. And she said, oh my, and her got sicker in her stomach. And as she left, she put her fingers on the door frame. And it was all sticky goo. And she left and went in the next room and there were her two painters just painting their hearts out. But they had not stirred the paint. So the linseed oil had gone to the top, the white pigment had gone to the bottom, and they had painted two rooms with linseed oil and now there was no oil to mix together with the pigment. So that instead of white transformation, there was sticky goo. And do you know what I think God is asking for you and for me is that God would so stir our hearts that there would come into your life and my life what Jesus is talking about where it's not my will and his will, sticky goo, pigment, and linseed oil, but our hearts would be so stirred by his sweet spirit that there would be a unifying effect on that pain, a unifying effect in my heart so there is only one will in my life, only one will in your life, and that is the will of God for you and for me. He stirs our hearts, and when we begin to get in line with him, do you know what then begins to happen? We begin to be able to seek him first. We begin to be able to stir our hearts to love and good works, and we begin to get on God's mind. My prayer is that this semester God would stir us to repentance. 
God would stir us to instant obedience, and then God would stir us to prayer. Intercessory prayer so he can make us women, women that carry the world on our heart, women that carry our nation on our hearts so that we become women that are world Christians. Now, what does that have to do with Titus? I believe that God wants to stir our hearts with intimacy for himself, stir us to put him first. And then I will believe God wants us to stir our hearts so that we can begin to stand in the gap. Ezekiel 22:30. I sought for a man among them or a woman that would stand in the gap for the nation, but I found no one. That God could so move our hearts that it's not my will or his, but it's just his will in my life. So that we begin to lay down our agenda and pick up the agenda of God himself. And so that God can begin to use us. Now, I believe that he's given us a biblical mandate to do this. In Titus 2, 3 through 5. And it's just so practical and sweet. First of all, he says that you and I, who know Jesus Christ, are older women in the faith. We know about. We don't just know about him. We know him, and that. And some of us have known him only a few weeks. Some of us have known him months. Some of us have known him years. But anyone who's known Jesus Christ has known him longer than someone else who still doesn't know him. So everyone qualifies to be an older woman in the faith. And what does an older woman's life look like? It says the older women are to be reverent in the way they live, not slanders, not addicted to wine, and to teach what is good. So that means reverent behavior, a holy life. We're to have a holy tongue. Not easy. (laughs) And we're to be self-controlled. When the Spirit comes in and fills us, He can transform my life, He can even transform my tongue, and He can build in control into who I am. That is the essence of the spirit-filled life. That is the essence of the holy life. Holiness of heart. Holiness of heart is intimacy with Jesus, living for Jesus, is loving Jesus, not overwork, but overflow. Yippee. (laughs) That's what we're talking about here. So that what God wants is to make us women that are holy, that are whole and holy, that are all his. That's the essence of a Titus woman. Now, some of these I would like to give like as a checklist and just go through them quickly so you can see as you just listen whether your heart is his, all his, or if something has gotten in between. One, the first characteristic I believe of a Titus woman is she is an open hearing heart. We already have heard about that this morning. And our, our example, there are many examples, but the one that comes to my mind that I love is the little woman Lydia. Remember Lydia? A businesswoman. She lived in Philippi, and every Sunday, Saturday, she met with prayers with some other women by, by the river. And they prayed week after week after week after week. And this is the incredible value of one praying woman. She's praying. And if you look in Acts 16, it says Paul, the apostles, on his second missionary trip, he starts to go to Asia, and the Spirit forbids him. He starts to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit forbids him. He has a vision of Macedonia. He goes to Macedonia. Then he goes to Troas and Samothrace and Neapolis. And finally, where does he end up? He ends up in Philippi. These little women are praying. 
And as they keep praying, God moves the great Apostle Paul all around to one Sabbath, get him where? At a little riverside prayer meeting. And there's one woman there. And what kind of heart does she have? It says the Lord opened her heart. And do you know what? She responded to the teaching of Jesus. She responded to the gospel. And she not only responded, she led her whole family to the Jesus. They were all baptized. And not only that, she opened up her living room and said, Paul, can't you come meet in my living room? And the church of Jesus Christ went west into Europe instead of east into Asia in the very beginning because there was one little woman who met with some other little women who began to pray and seek God. And God literally moved heaven and earth to get the greatest apostle that's ever lived to meet with those little women. There's incredible power in the presence of one woman who hungers for who God is. Do you know what I read a couple Sundays ago? I love Sunday. I love it where you can just seek his face. And I was reading, and I came across the little book that was downstairs. And my mother was taking downstairs, and I kept noticing it as it never seemed to go down to the library. And I said, Jesus, do you want me to read that? I picked it up and read through it on Sunday afternoon. Do you know what one of the stories was? It was about the Archduchess of Hungary in 1833. Her name was Maria Dorothea. She lived in the palace right there on the Danube. I was there this summer when I went to see my daughter, Katie Beth, and Dan, or missionaries in Hungary. She lived in the palace. Someone she loved died. We don't even know if it was a child or who it was. Someone she loved very deeply died. And Maria Dorothea came across the Bible, and she met Jesus. Maria Dorothea began to pray. And she wasn't allowed or didn't know very much except she met Jesus. So she immediately shared Jesus with her children that she could know, they could know him personally. And God stirred her heart, and she shared them with the children. But then she began to open her bedroom window, a little bit like Daniel, every single day. And for seven years, she had a little place of prayer where she opened her window, looked out over the Danube River, looked out over her, the Hungarian people, and she said, Jesus, could you tell, send someone to me, a counselor, who could teach me more fully the ways of Jesus? And could you send someone to tell my people about yourself? Seven years, Maria Dorothea opened a bedroom window in the palace in Budapest, Hungary, and prayed. She's in Hungary. There was a Scotsman by the name of Woodcock, one man, begins to get a burden for the Jews, God's neglected people. It gets so strong, he fasts and prays for the Jews. And God, it gets such a burden that God begins to stir up the, Jew, the Scottish church. And so the Scottish church got so stirred about the neglected state of the people of God that they sent four of their very best preachers on an exploratory missions trip to Palestine and then into Europe to see the state of God's people to see where they could start a mission to the Jews. So, Andrew Boner, Robert Murray McShane, 
Dr. Keith and Dr. Black, four Scottish preachers, start off on a missions trip. A little woman is praying in Budapest, Hungary. Her name is the Archduchess Anna Dorothea. And God is moving a little group of Scottish preachers up the palace, Palestine. Do you know what Black fell off his camel? He was so seriously wounded. They said, well, we need to put him on a boat and get more help for him. So they put him on a boat going up the Danube. Keith went with him. The other two went on with their other part of the trip. As they're going up the Danube, all of a sudden Keith comes down with cholera. He is so seriously ill that they have to stop right outside the palace on the Danube in Budapest, Hungary. Two weeks before they arrive, every single night at the same time in the middle of the night, Jesus whispers to the little archduchess, the one I'm sending is coming, look for him. The one I'm sending is coming to tell you about me, look for him. And so every night she, she prayed and waited. Two weeks passed and the servants came in one morning and said there are two strangers in town and they're very sick. And the spirit of Jesus said, they're the ones. She went down, she cared for them. And then she, as they got well, they shared Jesus with her more perfectly. And then she said, could you please come and tell my Hungarian people about Jesus Christ and that you can know him personally? And she said, and then I'll look to see what needs to be done for the Jews. And do you know the Scottish church sent back preachers and people to share Jesus with the Hungarians? The largest, the, the mission to the Jews was established for Eastern Europe. The largest synagogue in all of Europe is right in Budapest, Hungary. And Protestant faith came in at that point after the Reformation, came once again to the people of Hungary. And do you know I read it? And I have a daughter that's at Hungary. And I said, Jesus, could it be? that my Katie Beth is an answer to the prayers of a little archduchess who prayed for seven years looking out a window that there would be someone who would come and share Jesus. You don't know and I don't know the incredible value of your life and my life to the ministry and to the heart of God if we would just get our lives squeaky clean and fall irrevocably in love with him. Jesus Christ is calling us to a love adventure. The question is, will we offer excuses like they did to the marriage supper? Or will we say, yes, Jesus, I accept. I long to fall in love with you. Do you have an open hearing heart? Do you have an undivided heart? Or is your heart divided? Do you know some of the tests that I love that are very simple that we read last year in the mind of Christ? Is my heart all his? Do you know what submission to Jesus Christ is? Submission is laying down the terrible tyranny of having to have my own way all the time. And if you want to know what it looks like, not covered over or glossed over, look at your two-year-old and your three-year-old and my two-year-old and my three-year-old and they defy the world. And God wants to get rid of that self-will and not take away from our selfness 
who he's made us to be, but he wants that self-will to be brought under the knife of the cross so we might be set free. Let me ask you today, has God so touched your heart that there's transformation and your heart's all his? Do you and I go through life saying, how do I look? Do we go through life saying, Lord, I really deserve better than this? Do we go through life saying, I wonder what's in it for me? Do we go through life saying, yes, Lord, I'll do anything but. And what God wants to do is stir our hearts so it's not your will and mine, but just one transforming presence and power of himself, not sticky goo. Is your heart faithful and obedient? When you and I begin to walk with him, when we begin to give him all we've got, then we can begin to hear him. And a faithful heart is an obedient heart. So that if he says it, now the devil will pummel us. So he says, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to. If you hear you've got to, or you ought to, or you need to, or you should, and it keeps just beating you up, that's the enemy. But there will be a gentle, sweet voice that will just be consistent. And you'll have someone on your heart to pray for or someone on your heart to call or someone on your heart to visit or someone on your heart to share Jesus. And if that does not go away and it's just as sweet and persistent and quiet and loving, you know that's Jesus and you know God's gone before you and you're not alone. God is asking for faithful, obedient hearts. And do you know the heart that God's laid on my heart for that is Deborah? Remember where she was a mother in Israel and, the, and they were so backslidden and so lost and doing every, everyone doing what was right in their own eyes and there were no men that rallied to lead the people of God and she just went to bear and they were harassed by the Canaanites and finally De Deborah had her stomach full of it and she said, God, you do something here and she challenged Barak to go to war and God threw back the enemy. And the cry of her, her, then there's a song, Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song. A mother in Israel that God woke up to make a difference for a whole people group. And remember the story of our Brazilian mother who was living in Rio and in in like all of our big cities throughout the world that was so drug infested. And she said, God, what can I do for my teenagers? They are all lost. And, and they will all be in drugs unless you do something. What strategy can you give me? He said, pray 15 minutes every day for your children, that they will know me as Savior, they will know me in full surrender, and that they, you will be willing to give them as missionaries here or wherever you, I want them around the world. And she began to pray 15 minutes for those kids. Then God said, meet once a week with another mother and, she, and began to pray with her for hers. And so those two mothers began to pray once a week. And do you know, I read the article in CP and when I finished reading, there were over 600 groups of mothers that were praying for their children in Rio. And they were meeting once a month for victory reports of the ones God had brought in. It was so cute. I was in New York one time, and they had they started one of those wake up Deborah prayer meetings to pray for children and families in covenant 15 minutes a day. And I said to one gal as she was leaving, it was Sunday afternoon. That's when they met for prayer. I said, "What have you got in your bag?" She said, "I've got eight by ten pictures of all my kids. I put them on the altar so God doesn't miss who they are." So what we're doing is God wants to wake us up.
He wants to wake us up and lay on our hearts the part of the Great Commission that is for you and for me. He wants to make us the tightest woman. And then the most, the sweetest. He wants to make us a woman of prayer so that God can get us out of I care about us for no more and begin to lay on our heart the world so that you and I begin to pray over those, our families. Then we begin, he moves our hearts, so we begin to pray over those that are lost. And then he begins to lay nations on our heart, so we begin to be world Christians. And once again, in the life of Hannah, Hannah was a woman whose pain drove her to Jesus. She was not able to have a child. What she did was she took her pain to Jesus, and out of that pain, God gave her Samuel. And I don't know what pain you're in today, but don't get angry or bitter at him. But take your pain to Jesus and use it for intercessory prayer. And you and I think like this. And she was thinking about that baby and what God was thinking about was the redemption and revival for the people of Israel who were so lost. God wants to move us into the realm of prayer. Do you and I know how to pray? If you and I will begin to sit in his presence, he'll begin to teach us. When I started, I remember I had a little green chair. It was in a window looking over the Danube, just a little green chair. And God said, I want you to spend this time, much time with me. I said, oh, okay, didn't sound too bad. I said, I want you to read, and then I want you to pray. Okay. And then I prayed through everybody I knew. I prayed for all my friends, all my family, all my loved ones, all the missionaries I knew. I prayed up the street, down the street. It was four and a half minutes. <laughs> so I said, wow. So then I prayed it all over again. It was another four and a half minutes. And I said, Lord, I'll never fill in this time that you've given me. He said, I know. Would you just please be quiet? And if you will sit here and carve out this time with me every day, I will teach you how to pray. I said, well, I, that, I could do that. And you can too. As you separate a time for him. And if you have little babies and you're in the biggest business of the world with those little ones, Billy almost died eating so many Cheerios. <laughs> I just would feed him Cheerios and feed him. And do you know what? Then God can give you a great commission heart a heart that touches the world so that he set us free and make us whole and make us holy. Because who was the very first one that he gave the mandate to start the Great Commission? Mary Magdalene. A woman. She was the last one at the cross and the first one at the tomb because she loved him so much. He had done so much for her. And she said, go. He said, tell them. Who was crucified, he is risen. He is not here. Go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. So that what Jesus wants to do is make you and I, like little Mary Magdalene, great commissioned Christians, to touch the world for him, beginning right in your world where you live and my world where I live. The question is, are we willing? And that's why I read this beautiful passage of Scripture. The banquet table is set, but are we offering excuses? 
oh, I'm too busy to get to know you, Jesus, and start a love adventure. You know, the kids are all little. Or I'm too busy, Jesus, because, you know, I've got to work full time. Or I'm too busy, Jesus, you know, we've got soccer and ball practice and piano. I'm just, Lord, I'd like to put you first, but Lord, I'm just too busy. Maybe later. But you know, the moments for our soul are now. And the choices we make are now. And the choice you make and the choices I make are choices that last through eternity. To touch people for God or touch them to turn away from Him. I heard the sweetest meditation story of this. <coughs> I was praying together with a friend of mine. We pray, take turns sometimes praying during church for the preacher. And so we were praying together, and the preacher was actually speaking on this passage. And she said, do you know what? One time I was studying that passage and just kind of meditating, and God gave me just kind of a word picture she said, I, I looked up, and there was this beautiful banquet table, more beautiful than anything I could ever see, had ever seen or could imagine. And I kind of walked up real shyly, because as I looked at this banquet table that was just full of people, there was Elijah and Moses and Abraham and John Wesley and C.S. Lewis and Mother Teresa. And she said, I just felt a little bit like, oh, these folks are too good for me. So she said, I just pulled back a little and kind of was sad. And it didn't look like there was any room. It looked like everybody was so Christian and so qualified, and I didn't quite qualify. And as I got ready to turn away from the banqueting table, she said, I heard a voice. And the voice called me by name and said, come here, come here. There's room. There's room right here next to me. And I looked, and it was Jesus. And he said, there's room. Don't go away. There's room right here next to me. We'll all just scoot down. And she said, so Elijah and Mother Teresa and John Lennon, they all scooted down. And I walked over and sat right down, right next to him. Because there's room in God's house for you. And there's room at the table for me. And it's not our qualifications. It's our willingness to say, Jesus, I need you. And he says, come, there's room. And he calls us by name. Beth, there's room. Just come and sit right here next to me. We'll all scoot down. And I think that's the essence of what we want to talk about in Bible study. Are we willing to begin a love adventure with Jesus Christ? Then let Jesus Christ begin to make us into a woman after his own heart. So he begins to heal us and cleanse us and purify us and set us free. Because holiness of heart set, makes us whole. God never does things halfway. So he can transform you and I and make us people after his own heart. And then, not only that, do you know what God can do? He can begin to put you in the place the places that he has made you for and you will get into the full will of God and you will say I feel like a little duck in the pond or a little pig in the sunshine I couldn't be any happier 
This is what he made me for. (laughs) So it is a win-win situation. It is Jesus calling us today to a love adventure with himself. I'd like to close with one story and then I'm through. Remember in the voyage of the drawn treader by C.S. Lewis, who is at the table. <laughs> remember the where? Remember Houston's? They went on the trip and uh, the great boat trip, and Houston got in the group with the other children from Narnia, and he was just absolutely obstreperous. He was mean as a stake. He was totally self-willed. He was pitiful. And they all could hardly bear Eustace. He thought of no one but just himself. Well, they ended up being shipwrecked on an enchanted island. And Eustace, not wanting to work with the rest of them while they uncovered the ship and salvaged what needed to be salvaged, he snuck off so he wouldn't have to work. Sounds like some of our children, doesn't it? (laughs) He snuck off. He ended up in an enchanted cave. And do you know what happened to Eustace? He became like what he was in his heart. And he woke up the next morning, and Eustace had turned into an enchanted dragon. No longer was he a little boy. He had belch smoke. He had all tough skin. He could fly. And he realized to his horror what had happened to him. He had become like what he was. And so he tried to find the children, but of course they didn't recognize him and were terrified. And then through a series of their talking back and forth, they came to realize that the most awful thing had happened, Eustace had become a dragon. And they didn't know how to set him free. And Eustace the dragon became much nicer than Eustace the little boy had been. He began to care and help them out and fly over to see where food was and began to bring food to them and began to help them. And in his pain and in his disillusionment and in his despair, his heart began to turn, not from total self-absorption, but began to turn toward others. One night, Eustace was sleeping. And all of a sudden, he heard something. And even though he was a fire-breathing dragon, he was frightened because out of the shadows came a great, mighty lion, Aslan himself. And Aslan showed up, and there was no moonlight that night, but Aslan was covered with glory. And Eustace was afraid. And Aslan said, Would you like to be free? And he said, oh, yes, but I can't get free. He said, you could shed your skin and be set free. And he said, I guess I could. So he thought, maybe I'm like a snake where you shed your skin. So he began to wiggle and began to work. And sure enough, the dragon skin fell off. And right to the side was this beautiful pool with marble steps going down. And Eustace ached to get into the pool. And Aslan said, you can't go into the pool till you get rid of the dragon skin. But the minute he got to the steps, the dragon skin grew back on. So Eustace in despair said, well, I must not have done a good enough job. So he shook himself again and began to work at getting this dragon skin off. And sure enough, it slipped off beautifully. No pain came off, fell to the side. 
got ready to go down into the pool and as he got ready to go the skin grew back on and finally he looked up at Aslan in despair and Aslan said you can never set yourself free only I can will you let me and he said oh yes he was desperate so Aslan took his claws and went deep into the dragon skin and it hurt and then he pulled off the dragon skin and there was just this raw dragon and then as and it just raw flesh then he picked up that dragon and threw him into the pool and it smarted at first and hurt but then it felt utterly delicious and he began to swim and as he swam he stuck out two little white little boy hands and he felt two little little boy feet paddling behind him Aslan had set him free and do you know what that is just an allegory of what God wants to do with you and I all our best efforts will never set us free and make us whole or make us holy only the blood of Jesus can as we come to him and say Jesus would you set me free would you transform me not only my surface not only modified behavior but would you change me inside out so that I have a heart that's whole and holy that's wholly yours today would you like to go on a love adventure even better than any ugly wiggly adventure a love adventure with the one who made you with the one who died for you with the one who's coming back for you and the one who has spread a table ready for you who says come on over there's plenty of room come sit next to me we will all scoot down let's pray dear sweet Jesus 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 today would you just come would you give us a vision today of the sweetness of full surrender and a love adventure with Jesus Christ that transforms our lives our thinking, our minds our spirits and sets us free to be whole and to be holy Jesus would you come would you let every one of us see today the thrill and the fun and the excitement of being all yours Jesus would you speak truth to our inner hearts and would you let this day be the beginning in every one of our lives of a new love adventure with the sweet person of Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit and we just praise you Jesus in your name Amen